We're carrying on this morning um, in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible with you or you've got the Bible on your phone, um, you'll probably find it helpful to turn to it. It will also appear on the screen. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4. If you are here last week, remember we had that long list of names. Well, for this week at least, it doesn't really get much easier, but it does by next week. So just a bit of encouragement to look forward to. So this is about Jesus being tested in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It is being given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to if you worship me. It will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Interesting, challenging words. As you drive into church, um, up the church driveway, there is a drain at the end of the drive, and it has been blocked for about two years. And um, we'd logged it with the council, and it's still pending with the council two years later. So on Thursday afternoon, um, just after toddlers, Richard instigated a valiant attempt to unblock the, gra- unblock the drain. And you know what I'm like with water, anything to do with water, I have to get involved. So here's me and Richard um, unblocking the drain. What a fine photo that is. Do you know what? It worked. And me and Richard are now experts on U-bends, drainage systems, and all kinds of things. So I'm sure if you want to grab Richard after the service, he would love to tell you in great length all about the construction of the drains that are around the front of church. But a drain has one job, doesn't it? A drain has one job. Take away water, and that is it. does one thing, and if it's blocked, it is totally useless. Luke is very clear as he writes his gospel That when God is at work, when the kingdom of God advances, quite often there is a backdraft from the powers of darkness. They come and they try to steal what the kingdom of God is about. The goodness of God, they try to twist it, subvert it, and destroy it. And they try and stop us in our tracks. So if something amazing is happening, there'll be something that happens that will try, if you like, to cause us to be a block drain, for us to be useless. And Luke chapter 4, in a sense is the powers of darkness trying to stop Jesus in his tracks. Just before he starts his ministry, stop him. 
cut him off, stop him from doing all the things that he would do. If you were here last week, Jesus at this point is on something of a spiritual crest of a wave. He has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit has fallen on him in um, an incredible way, like a dove. And he has been filled and empowered for service. But now Jesus will be tested. The Greek word for testing is the same word as temptation. It's an interchangeable word. So Jesus, fully God, fully human, called by the Father to do the Father's will, called to fulfill the law, called to live a perfect life, goes off into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit into this place to be tested. So why does Jesus need testing? Well, my car went for an MOT a few weeks back, and thankfully it passed, which is always a relief, isn't it? Because you never know when your car goes in for an MOT what bills are going to arise. But when a car has an MOT, you know that there's enough tread on the tires, you know that the brakes are going to work, hopefully, when you put your foot on them, and you know that the basic things in the car have been checked for safety. Don't test the car, you have no knowledge. So the testing of Jesus, in a sense, proves what God will do. It proves who he is. It proves that actually it is possible to resist the devil. It is possible to do all the things that Jesus will talk about. So in Luke chapter 4, we see an attempt of the devil to tear down, but we see the victory of God building as Jesus overcomes. But there are multiple layers here. You know, God is always after relationship with us, isn't he? That is God's desire. We are not robots. But relationship only exists in free will. So for free will to actually happen, we always have the choice to not do what God wants. We always have the choice to go our own way. And testing actually proves our love for God. If we're tested and we come through it, it actually proves that we're serious about God, far more than actually when we're together worshipping. That's quite easy to prove to God that we love him there. But in the wilderness, it's much harder. Remember what we looked at last week about being in Adam or in Christ. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And in this passage, there is a sense in which, you know, Adam, the the first human being in the Bible, he fails in the garden. He fails in paradise. He fails when he has this perfect relationship with God. He can't keep doing God's will. Him and Eve, they go off and they listen to the murmurings of the tempter. And they suffer enormously as a result. Yet Jesus, he's not in paradise, but he's in the wilderness. He's on his own. He's there. And all these temptations from the devil come at him. And yet the second Adam will succeed where the first one failed. So if we want to have life, we go with Jesus. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's all alone in this place of a hostile environment. And the temptations come to him. And Luke has no hesitation at all in saying these are from the devil. These are from the evil one. And later on in Luke chapter 11, in the gospel, we will see that Jesus unpacks that evil has a hierarchy. And the devil, the accuser, is the head of that integrated hierarchy of spiritual evil. I used to have a kid's Bible when I was growing up. And it had pictures in it all the way through. And it even had pictures for this passage. Not the kind of thing I think you'd put in a contemporary kid's Bible. Um, But it had a picture of Jesus sat on a rock in the Judean wilderness, being talked to by um, the devil. And the devil was bright red. And he had horns. And he had a tail. 
And you know, he looked like something off a Manchester United shirt, that kind of red devil type look. Um, and he was there, and he was tempting Jesus, taking him on a guided tour of the world. And the whole passage was very physically located. It used to quite unnerve me, I think, as a kid, like turning to that page. But it's interesting, in this passage, though the devil speaks, he doesn't take physical form. That isn't what Luke actually says. I think this is far more likely than being a physical encounter. That here is Jesus, hungry, in the wilderness, on his own, confronted by whisperings, confronted in his mind by temptations, by misquoting of scripture, by things that just keep bombarding him. And, you know, it's it's an encouragement from the powers of darkness to turn his messiahship to self-seeking ends, invert, subvert the purposes of God. And for this to be real, for Jesus, it has to be high stakes. It has to be the kind of things that actually we could fall for or he could fall for. You know, temptation in our own lives, it often creeps in in the wilderness experiences, doesn't it? You know, if I was tempted by a little red man with a tail, I, I might sort of guess it that this was a temptation. But it comes with the whisperings. It comes with the thoughts of, well, everyone else is doing this. Surely this is okay. Or nobody will ever find out. Or does it really matter? And all these whisperings can come to us. They can be from our own human flesh. They can be from outside sources of evil. And they can be from other people. I came across a quote as I was looking at this this week, which I found quite helpful thinking about temptation. It says this, Temptation happens in the gut, not in the brain, eliciting a jumble of magnetic emotions, both luring us and repelling us simultaneously. It can be as innocent as reaching for a piece of chocolate cake, hesitating and then pushing away from the table, or as guilty as embezzlement, reaching into a cash drawer, hesitating and then stashing the money. And then he lists common temptations, include eating too much, spending too much, laziness, venting on social media, gossiping, feeling jealous, viewing pornography, lying or cheating and abusing alcohol. Then he goes on to quote John Quincy Adams. I don't know whether you think this is true. Every temptation is an opportunity of our getting nearer to God. Every temptation is actually an opportunity to learn spiritual muscle and spiritual strength as we seek to draw closer to God. Now, temptation can lead to sin, but as Jesus shows, it doesn't need to. It can lead to a distortion of who we are, but it doesn't need to. It can lead to dangerous habits, but it doesn't need to. And this is what Jesus will show us. So let's quickly look through the three temptations. Stone into bread. I love the way Luke passes over it and says, after 40 days of not eating, he was hungry. You know, after 40 minutes of not eating, I'm hungry. But this is 40 days of not eating. And there's a very basic temptation. Come on, Jesus. You're in the wilderness. You're all alone. Here's some stone. Turn it into bread. What will Jesus do later in his ministry with bread? He will multiply bread for a few into bread for thousands. It's not something he won't do. So why not do it now? Why not exploit the privilege of being son of God and not go hungry? Why not just turn a rock into bread and have your fill? You know, bread isn't evil, is it? It's not evil to fill yourself on bread. But Jesus didn't come with privilege. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He won't use who he is for his own advantage, but he will only use it to show the will of his Father. Now, we too face temptations, don't we, to put ourselves on pedestals. Now, I can't turn stones into bread, so that is not a real temptation for us. 
But we can easily want to get ourselves front and center and think that other people should serve us and forget who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. And we can subvert the whole nature of the gospel in doing that. What does Jesus do? Does he enter into dialogue and argue this away? No. He just cuts at it straight with the word of God. Cuts straight through the temptation, the subtlety with scripture. And he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8. When the people of Israel were in the desert, God fed them supernaturally with manna and quails. This is the whole verse. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Trust in God. Don't use Messiahship for your own advantage. The next one, claiming kingship. Following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, many of the writers of the New Testament will tell us that Jesus is the name above all names. We've sung about it this morning. He is unrivaled. He has no equal. He is the one who reigns over the nations. And we find in the great Christ hymn of Philippians these words, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you've got that passage in front of you, just compare those incredible words with Luke 4, verse 6. It says this. This is the evil one speaking. I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. What's the difference? Well, the Bible teaches time and again that actually there are powers of evil that have huge sway over the corrupt nature of our world's governments, over the power structures in our world. And you only need to look at how the poor are oppressed on a colossal and terrible scale to see that that is true, to see that that is true. But what um, Satan comes and offers, what the devil comes and offers, is, look, you can have all this now. You can have the kingdoms of the earth now, but you don't need to go through Calvary. You don't need to go through the suffering of a suffering Messiah. You don't need to be the suffering servant of Isaiah. You don't need to do all these things. You can just come. If you just bow the knee, I'll give it all of you now. But it's a shadow. It's a parody. It comes at a very costly price. Our world is full of buy now, pay later schemes, isn't it? You know, the basic idea. You can't afford an item, so what do you do? You, you buy it, and then you spread the payments over however many years afterwards. And, you know, I, I would imagine many of us have possibly used those kind of things to buy a car or something expensive. Um, but I don't know if you've come across um, various apps that have appeared over recent years where you can um, do buy now, pay later schemes for anything. You decide what it is, and you can just spread the cost over it. Apps like um, Updraft, Clearpay, Butter, I don't know if anyone's come across them, But um, I was reading something this week saying they're coming under a huge amount of scrutiny by sort of financial watchdogs and things like that. Because what they're doing is they're allowing people to spread the cost of something like an energy bill or a train ticket or something like that. And it can easily pile up and up and up until you can't pay your debt off. And people spiraling into debt very, very quickly. Have it all now, but pay for it later. In a sense, this is what the temptation for Jesus is. Claim your kingship now, but at a massive, massive cost. What's the cost? Well, it's idolatry. It's actually worshipping the very one who Jesus will defeat. It's a parody what is being offered here. It's chasing a shadow 
And Jesus, again, stands firm. You know, sometimes in our lives, we can be tempted, can't we, to claim things before God says we should do. We can be tempted to to sort of have everything now and sort of forget the consequences. You know, it might be financially we, we try and do it, and we're trying to buy our way into happiness. It might be with sex, you know, sex before marriage. It might be trying to, to jump the gun with a ministry that actually God has said, yeah, I want you to do that, but I don't want you to do it yet. And we might push and push and push and try and make things happen. And we can find ourselves trying to claim what God has said, yeah, this is okay, but not yet. Not yet. In my timing, according to my will and purposes. What does Jesus do again? Gets the word of God, goes to the heart of the issue, doesn't dialogue, but simply says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where have we heard that before? First commandment. First commandment. If you're going to succeed as a follower of Jesus, you've got to put God absolutely first and not fall into idolatry. Third thing, testing God. It's a bit of an odd one, this. I don't know if you thought that when I was reading through the passage. Jesus is led to Jerusalem. Again, I'm presuming this is in his mind, not physically. And he's taken onto the top of Herod's great temple, and the the devil says to him, throw yourself off. Angels will come and catch you. And it's another test. You know, be Messiah in front of everybody. Become the Son of God visibly, tangibly. But what does the devil do here? Well, he plays Jesus at his own game. And he's heard Jesus refute him with Scripture. So now he tries to play the Scripture card with Jesus himself. He says, well, this is what the Bible says. You know, take this passage of the Bible. It says that angels will come and rescue you. Just think what would have happened in Jerusalem if Jesus would have done that. If he jumped off the temple and angels had guided him to the floor, there'd have been thousands of people would have seen it. He could have claimed Messiahship on his own terms and everybody would have known exactly who he is. But look at the misquote of Psalm 91 that um, the devil uses. Now, Psalm 91, if you know the psalm, is the most wonderful, wonderful psalm. I'll just read you the first couple of verses. It says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's a song about what happens when we dwell in God's presence and how God will hold us through difficult times. How he will rescue us, not not always physically, but how we will rescue our spirits and our souls and our deepest beings. It has absolutely nothing to do with God protecting those who involve testing God by doing ridiculous stunts in order to try and engineer a miracle. Nothing whatsoever. But the temptation is here. Prove who you are. But at what cost? Well, the cost is disobedience again, isn't it? So Jesus gets Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. What does Jesus show us here? Well, I think the first thing is we will all be tempted. If I said to you today, put your hand up if you've never been tempted to do anything you know was wrong, there'd be not a hand up in the room. We all face temptation. But I think what Jesus shows us is how to deal with temptation what to do with it, and how to turn testing into victory. So I just want to give us three things, and very thankfully this morning, they all begin with the letter R. So recognize the first thing. If you want to overcome a temptation, or if I want to, the first thing we have to do is to recognize that it's a temptation. Now, sometimes a temptation is obvious. 
If I'm in a situation and I'm tempted to just mouth off at somebody, all kinds of, you know, whatever it is, and get really cross and angry, and I'm tempted to do it, I know that's wrong. I know that's not how God wants me to behave. If I'm tempted to tell a lie, again, I know it's wrong. If I'm tempted to punch somebody in the face, again, I know it's wrong. These are not the kinds of things I need to go away and think about at any great length. But sometimes temptation isn't very obvious, is it? Sometimes temptation, and and our temptations will be different for each person. What tempts me might not tempt you. They'll be different, and sometimes they come with a layer of veneer over the top of them, that they look like a perfectly viable option, that it looks like something that might even be spiritual to do. Yet actually, when we start to dig a bit deeper, we find actually that's not what God wants. That's not what God has in his heart. Sometimes a temptation can be an instant, and it can be tough. But sometimes it builds over time and we may find ourselves weighing options and working out what to do. So how do we recognize? Well, is it in line with the word of God? That is a very straightforward one. Does it resonate with God's heart and with scripture? Something that I find quite helpful is if I'm thinking through something, is where will I end up if I go down that course of action? Where will I end up? Will I end up closer to God or further away? Will I end up being drawn into the presence of God? Will I end up further away? What will it do to the people around me? Will it hurt them or build them up? What will it do? What will it do to me? Will it make me feel like I'm following Jesus more closely? Or will it put me in a place of guilt? Will it lure me in and repel me at the same time? If it does, then start thinking that could be temptation. And start examining the motives of what is going on. You see, if we recognize it, we can then start to do something about it. Second thing Jesus does is refute. The word of God is a powerful, powerful weapon. And truth always takes down lies, hands down. Now, if we recognize the temptation, the truth of God's word will help us to overcome it. I think this is what we find Jesus doing. If I'm tempted to lie, and I don't necessarily mean a huge, great big lie, but twist the truth for my own ends to make something more palatable for me, And then I get into the word of God, Leviticus 19, 11. It simply says, do not lie. I can start to think that through and think, well, what will be the implications of my behavior? How will it pull me away from God? What will it do in the long term? But you know what? In order to use God's word, we have to know God's word, don't we? So it's a fairly obvious statement. But in order to use it, we have to know it. Now, it used to be really fashionable um, when I was growing up to do memory verses to, to learn silly songs that, that helped us to learn bits of the Bible. And I can still recall a load of songs. I'm not sure the melodies were always quite in line with the scripture, but anyway, that's a different issue. And those things, a bit like Carol had this morning. Do you remember those where we used to get a scripture line with people with cards at the front and then they take a word away and we had to learn it and those kind of things. If you've been in church a while, you'll know what I'm talking about. I think it'd be great, wouldn't it, if we actually took learning scripture seriously. Because sometimes in those decision times just to be able to get a word of scripture into our heart and say actually God's word says don't do that don't gossip God's word says don't do that don't steal don't lie whatever it is whatever the temptation whatever the pull but we also live in a world where we have a great tool most of us in our pockets if we want to know what God's word said you know if I'm on my phone here I can google it I can say what does God say about and it will come up with a load of bible verses Great for sermon prep as well, but anyway, that's a different issue. But if you're being tempted, you can go in there and you can just ask, what does God's word say about this issue? And you can do it quickly and we can be ready with the word of God. 
And the word of God will help us as it helped Jesus to overcome. Third thing is reorder. Temptation can leave us really vulnerable. In Matthew's account of exactly the same events, there is an extra verse added at the end. And it says in Matthew 4.11, angels came and attended to him. Jesus was hungry, he was worn out, he was tempted, and he needed to be reordered. He needed just the presence of of messengers from his heavenly father to be with him. You know, if we overcome temptation, it can leave us vulnerable. It can lead us in need of one another. But let's be honest, there will be times when we don't always overcome temptation. There will be times when something comes to us and the temptation gets too much and we're more Adam than we are Jesus and we end up falling into sin and we end up doing all kinds of things that, that put us in a position where we know we've disappointed God. And we get to the point where actually we know we need to repent. But even once we've done that, even once we've said sorry to God, what happens if we've done it once, it's far easier to do it again. Because we're human and we're broken and we're fallen. And if we do it again, and actually there are very little consequences to what we've done, we can then get into patterns. And patterns of behavior can get enforced in our lives really quickly. You know, if I've lied or I've gossiped and it's not really brought any consequences, it's very easy to do it again. Very, very easy to keep doing it. Sometimes if we keep falling, we need one another. I read a a really good line this week that said, whilst our walk with Jesus is personal, it's never private. Just let me say that again. Whilst our walk with Jesus is personal, it's never private. You know, sometimes I think, particularly in our sort of British culture, we say, don't talk about faith, don't talk about these things. And we can keep our Christian walk just hidden away from everybody else. The New Testament never encourages that. Encourage one another, love one another, all these amazing one another phrases of the Bible. And there's a verse in James 5 where it says in verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You know, we need one another at times, don't we? We need one another. Just this last week on on Monday, I went up to Carlisle and I met with five other ministers who we all trained together. We all went to college together at the same time and we've known each other now for, what, a decade and a half. And one of them is Jonathan Boyers. I know many will know Jonathan. You probably won't know the other people I was with. And and one thing we found over over the years that we've met is a deepening sense of relationship that we can actually be accountable with one another. We can actually ask one another those difficult questions and say, are you being tempted this way, that way, or the other? But it takes a long time to get there. You know, those relationships don't happen in two or three minutes. They take years to actually get that level of trust. But it's just that question for all of us. If we feel we are being pulled, either by ourselves, by our own fallen nature, by other people, or by the forces of evil, to fall and be tempted, do we have people who can stand with us and pray? Do we have them? Are they in our small groups? Are they in our prayer groups? Are the members of the leadership team who you'd feel happy coming and talking to? Because one thing I found is if we want to overcome temptation, we often need a hand. We often need a hand. So can I encourage you today, if you don't have those kind of relationships, join a small group. Find somebody who you can talk to. Try and get in those relationships where we're able to reorder. And the result, I've got a fourth R, I haven't realized that. There we go, the result. Freedom to keep becoming all God calls us to be. Praise the Lord, keep going, who sets us free. You see, if we're free of temptation, 
As Jesus comes out of the wilderness, what happens? He goes to minister. And he goes and becomes all that he was meant to be. The testing, the temptation results in a greater level of freedom to minister. Don't always think the temptation is going to be something that knocks us off. It can be, but it can be something where God shapes us and molds us to strengthen us, to give us spiritual muscles, if you like, to then minister into the future. Now, I don't know where your temptations are this morning. Temptation is different for all of us. But can I encourage you? Just think about those three things. Recognize, refute, and reorder. And the result? Freedom to keep becoming all God calls us to be. Let me pray. Yeah, Lord, we thank you that Jesus overcame in the wilderness. Just as Adam fell in the garden, Lord, you overcame. And we just pray that as we've looked at this passage this morning, that you will help us in our own way to follow your example. That when the tempter comes, when we are called and whispered to to do things that would go against your will, that we will spot them. We will be able to stand on your word and then we will be able to reorder and walk our lives through into freedom. So Lord, we praise you that you have set us free. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.